0: Come on. Welcome to Lifeblood. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Dave Mango. Dave, are you ready to do this? i'm ready excellent i'm ready let's let's go dave is the principal at mango tech he's an industry leader and subject matter expert international speaker and coach excited to have you on dave tell us a little bit about your personal life some more about your work and why you do what you do
1: Uh, I live in San Francisco, California. I moved out here actually in the late 90s and had no idea that there was this thing called the dot-com boom happening, and it was kind of a shock. (laughs) I did not not expect uh, what I, uh, you know, what I found, but uh, I have three kids. Uh, We like to go snowboarding and hiking and all those other uh, fun things that you would expect from... Uh, people who live in the Bay Area, because all that stuff is super accessible. And uh, yeah, I guess little known fact, I I moved to California with the intention of uh, going to grad school for neuroscience. And then people said, hey, you know about computers? And I was like, yeah, I I guess so. And they're like, here's a job. And I was (laughs) like, oh, wow. Okay, that wasn't really all that hard. Uh, But I began my career really as a software developer. Uh, And I didn't really like it all that much, because it kind of felt like the same thing every day. I come in, I work on code, I go home, I come in, I work on the same code, I go home. uh, And I found this thing that at the time was called Systems Administration. Now it's gone through probably five different names. Uh, But the great thing about it was Monday was mail, Tuesday was networking, Wednesday was storage, Thursday was security, Friday was something... And so like the variety of that and being exposed to all these different things and it was always like something new, uh, I really latched onto and I sort of have gone throughout my career uh, on that path, Uh, ultimately uh, winding up being an architect in infrastructure engineering for Salesforce, designed a lot of the internal systems that run Salesforce allow them to do some of the things that they do even Even now, uh, after that, went on to run the SolarWinds cloud companies. So not that part of SolarWinds, but another part of SolarWinds. I ran the SRE teams, the site reliability engineering teams for all their global companies in that part of the SolarWinds. Uh, And then two years ago, started MangoTech to help other companies get good at delivering software because it's... uh, You know, competitive advantage to the business, uh, and it's been proven uh, if you're good at delivering software. Uh, And so, I wanted to help a lot more companies than just the one or two that I was working at uh, to be able to do that.
0: Nice. Life is a funny thing, isn't it, Dave? Yeah,
1: (laughs) it's fun. Yes, it is funny.
0: So, help people get good at delivering software. Why? Why is that a hard thing?
1: Uh, it turns out, first of all, nobody even—not nobody, but few people— even understood that that was an important thing for quite the longest time. Uh, I have a lot of scar tissue from uh, early in my career when people used to say, "Oh, operations, you're you're a cost center." the real value in the business is from the developers because the developers write code and then your team is responsible for getting that code out there and keeping it running, sure, but they're the ones who are delivering all the value. And that really started to change in, uh, I'd say the mid-2000s uh, where companies like Google realized or you know developed this notion that running software well in production, keeping it Performant, keeping it secure, keeping it, you know, available all the time, all these things was actually a big differentiator for them. And all of a sudden it wasn't this, hey, your team is a cost center. You don't deliver any value. What people started to realize is the value is in running the software in production, because this software that all the developers are writing is an asset. It's something that we've invested capital into that we now have a product, but the product is no good if your customers can't buy it. You can have all the inventory you want on the shelves in a warehouse. You don't make money on inventory that's on shelves in a warehouse. You make money when your customers can go and actually buy that whatever widget that you've made. So get it into the stores, get it on Amazon, get it wherever it has to go. Uh, And so there's a bunch of companies that figured out that having this software available uh, Is really important and so your classic examples are going to be your Amazon's your Google's your Netflix Um, Netflix and Google and all these other companies also took it one step further and what they learned was that if they can get their the software that's written into the hands of their customers faster They can make more money. They can uh, do new things. They can learn new things. And so uh, the classic example of this would be Netflix, right? Everybody's like, oh, Netflix is amazing. They invented streaming movies over the internet and streaming TV shows. And, you know, everybody knows Netflix and chill, right? I mean, that's pretty common. Um, But the funny thing is, is that, you know, who did Netflix beat? They beat, beat Blockbuster. So you're like, oh, well, if only Blockbuster had thought of this idea of streaming movies over the Internet, they would be where Netflix is and their Blockbuster would be ubiquitous. The problem with that story is that Blockbuster did have the idea to stream movies over the Internet. Blockbuster had a five or seven year head start on Netflix in trying to stream movies over the Internet. Well, what happened? Why was Blockbuster, you know, they had certainly money, they had all this other stuff. How is Netflix able to do that? It's because Blockbuster wasn't good at delivering software. And what Netflix could do was developers could write code and then the software would go into production. And what Blockbuster, I don't don't know Blockbuster, I never worked there or anything, but most likely what they did is what every other company was doing at the time, which was, uh, you know, we release software once a month. If we're really, really good, most people release software maybe once a quarter or twice a year or something like that. And the problem with that is that you can't run experiments when you're releasing software that infrequently. And so it's this idea of experiments is something that Eric Ries talks a lot about in the Lean Startup, Uh, but it's this ability to go out there and test does this new feature appeal to my customers is this you know this is do they like the orange button or the blue button do they like a faster checkout that skips this thing all those things are experiments and the more experiments you can run the faster you can find out what your customers want whether that's product market fit or any other things like that and so it becomes an unfair fight when you can release software let's say three times a day and your competitor can release software three times a year because they can run three experiments a year and you can run three experiments a day. Who's gonna win that? Who's gonna find their product market fit? Who's gonna find what their customers want? And so um, out of all this came the birth of something that's called the DevOps movement. Uh, And it started around 2008, 2009. Uh, You know, this is all this period of rapid change with Google and all these other things and uh, uh, John Ospaugh and Paul Hammond gave a talk at this velocity conference called 10 deploys a day at Flickr dev and ops cooperation. And people at the conference, if you were there, their jaws were on the floor. 10 deploys a day, you know, and this is Flickr. So Flickr is not like some tiny little startup like Flickr is, you know, a well known company or whatever. But they're talking about 10 deploys a day where most companies weren't doing 10 deploys a year. And it was just completely astounding to everybody in the room. Uh, and so that's sort of you know considered one of the birthplaces of the DevOps movement, uh, which was this idea that when we have the operations teams and the development teams, and we've since expanded the the, the movement to include finance and legal and marketing and all these other parts of the company, uh, when we start looking at these problems together and thinking about ways that we can get the software into the hands of our customers quickly, but not only quickly, but with high quality, because throwing garbage at your customers, nobody, you know, if our widgets in the warehouse finally get in our customers' hands and they all fall apart, nobody wants to buy that widget again. Right. Uh, if we can do both of those things together, uh, then we're really onto something. And basically that DevOps movement has just crept its way throughout the entire industry. It started on the West Coast, it spread throughout the US, it spread throughout the world, and you know, if you look at all these companies now that are moving from data center to cloud and all these other fun things that we read about, 100% all based on the DevOps movement.
0: Nice. Well, that certainly does. I I, I very much appreciate the example, um, and that's that's certainly a good one between Blockbuster and um, and Netflix, and then talking about what the folks at Flickr were doing, and sort of put sort of knocked everybody on off their off, off their existing way of doing things. Um, and now here we are. Fast forward however many years it's been since then. Um, and is 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 this fairly common now? Or is there still a barrier to entry for a lot of organizations to do this?
1: Uh, I'd say the best way of describing it, it's becoming more common. So it is it is common. Uh, you know, this is a thing. I I've, I've been involved in the DevOps movement since the kind of since the beginning. I led the DevOps transformation at Salesforce. So uh, you know, Salesforce a few months ago uh, talked had a big announcement about Hyperforce, which I thought was the most ridiculous name letter for anything in quite some time. Uh, but Hyperforce is Salesforce being able to deploy Salesforce on public cloud. Whereas like Salesforce was always running in data centers. And um, that ability is something that you know we started back in like 2012 with like the with some of the changes that we made to how things were done. Um, and so it's just becoming more and more prevalent back then. It was something that just started in, in San Francisco. Um, but you know, the companies that I work with, uh, you know, in my business and my consulting, uh, are going through these transformations. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's the the whole thing about like the leaders and the laggards and, the, and the whole, uh, adoption cycle there's a lot of people who are doing this really, really well and have been for a few years now. Nobody has been doing this for 20 years because it didn't exist 20 years ago. So we're only talking about a decade of transformation so far. So um, there's a lot of companies that are still fighting their way through this, who are in the data center, who are trying to move to cloud for all kinds of reasons to move to cloud, Not, not just DevOps, but to start to change the way that they uh, that they work, and so um, one of the things that I, I do with my business is we do an assessment, and we come in and we talk to people about uh, you know how they are doing DevOps. We call it the service delivery assessment because it's how well you're doing service delivery. Uh, and it's funny because the whole assessment is interviews. So we don't, like, dig in and, and look at your architecture diagrams for for six weeks or anything like that. Uh, you know, we talk to, to engineers for, you know, somewhere between three and eight, ten hours of interviewing, and that's it. And uh, it's really about having this culture in place of being able to deliver things quickly. Uh, and there's a lot of things that are really good about the DevOps movement, like, even in that regard, it's... Uh, the The culture means that we're not just talking about do I have tests that run when I check in code, do I have alerting if something goes wrong so I find out about it like the, all those elements are in there, but we also ask really strange questions to leadership to management, like what's your vacation policy, and people are like what are you you're supposed to be telling us how well we deliver software, what are you asking me about by vacation policy?" You know, you open up any Harvard Business Review, like uh, you know, magazine or, or the website or whatever, and there's going to be just article after article after article about how employees that have like time off and can recover and can recuperate and whatever are just going to be way more productive than ones who have their nose to the grindstone and like are working weekends and are working nights and all that. They just, they're not as effective. And so, you know, one of the things that we ask people about their vacation policy, uh, and usually they fall into sort of three buckets, right? I've got my standard vacation policy, everyone gets three weeks a year, they can roll over these many hours, blah, blah, blah. That's like number one. The second one are the ones who think that they're gonna win this one. Yeah, <laughs> they're all excited. They're like, we have an unlimited vacation policy. <laughs> we win. Like we've got the best answer. Right. And you know, we mark them off for that. Uh, And the third uh, one is the people who have a minimum vacation policy. And those are the ones who get the highest marks Mm -hmm. because it turns out when you have an unlimited vacation policy, people don't take it because they want to be seen as like a team player and you know, they're loyal to the company and all the other stuff. They don't take vacation and then they get burned out. They do subpar work. They're exhausted. They're they don't respond to you know incidents when they get woken up in the middle of the night, or they they make a lot of mistakes in their code because they're just not taking care of themselves. And so, uh, unlimited vacation policy sounds awesome on paper, and turns out to be meh, not so good. Not even as good as a regular vacation policy, because then at least people are like, use you, you know you know they'll use it or lose it, like. If I'm getting to the end of the year and I've got 20 hours, like I'm going to go take three days off or whatever, you know, because I don't want to lose that because that stinks. That's money I'm just handing over that I just lost. So um, so we even include stuff like that in the assessment because we want to make sure that people are performing at their highest because. That's what we're assessing, is how high-performing is your software delivery capability.
0: Which which makes perfect sense, right? It's like we need to make sure that the human beings who are actually doing all the work and creating this beautiful software and testing it and then rolling it out and delivering it, that they are operating at as close to optimal levels as as, as, as possibly can. So, yeah. And I'm sure that... that I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that once you're engaged, it it's total, total, total light bulb comes on. Right. Or, or, or maybe it, not.
1: <laughs> it varies. You know, it, people are definitely uh, there's definitely a lot of like, why are you asking that question? Um, but, you know, one of the things that y- you just hit on it perfectly, like one of the things that we emphasize is like you want to use your humans as the smart, creative people that they are. And, you know, a lot of times we'll go in and we'll see somebody like, so what does this guy do? Oh, well, he shovels the dirt from here to there. You know, not obviously shoveling dirt in a software context, but like just does the same thing every day. It's mindless. Like we could write software that will probably replace him or whatever. But, you know, that's his job. And we're like, it's a horrible use of a human being. Like human beings are smart. They're creative. They want to solve tough problems. Let's write that software and automate that person out of a job. But instead of getting rid of them, let's put them on some hard problems. Let's make them figure out like, how do we get these customers to buy more of this or or that? Because that's what we wanna be spending our money on with the humans is, you know, having them be smart and creative, not doing repetitive work that a computer can do. Like that's silly. Computers don't care how hard you work them. (laughs) It's irrelevant. They don't burn out ever.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, Dave, the people are ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them?
1: Well, my difference-making tip is, is obviously going to be get good at delivering software. Uh, if you're an investor, if you're an executive, uh, you know, even even if you're an engineer or you know whatever, and this probably doesn't even apply, um, you know, only to like the software industry because. What is the software industry? Like, the software industry isn't really a thing anymore. There's certainly, you know, software companies, but every Satya Nandela from Microsoft says, like, every company is a software company. Uh, You look at Home Depot, they have thousands of developers. Home Depot is a hardware store. You look at John Deere, they make tractors, right? What's the most important thing? not the oil filter on the tractor. Now it's software. They download new software updates to their tractors. It's crazy. Uh, And so, you know, this really is like a strategic differentiator for a business. The uh, I guess the culmination from what you and I were talking about of like this 10 years of DevOps or 12 years, whatever it happens to be right now was in 2019. uh, A report came out called the Accelerate State of DevOps report. Uh, and there's a whole book behind of the science behind it, all the statistics, all the math. It's called Accelerate. Um, and what this report came out with was mathematical proof that companies that are good at delivering software, the highest performers are twice as likely to meet or exceed their organization's performance goals, which is just crazy, because this is something we've been talking about for Ten years, and we were all like, "Yeah, listen to us. We're zealots. We've got this great idea, and everybody's gonna come on board and figure this out with us." And and everybody's like, "Yeah, okay, sure. You know, I'm gonna go back to my big consulting company, and they're gonna tell me how to do this." But like now, we actually have a book. We have the math that shows like if you're good at this you're twice as likely to meet or exceed your organization's performance goals, whether that's customer satisfaction or revenue or market share or any of those things. This is like free money, like at this point, right? You're like, you get good at this and your organization is mathematically proven to perform better. Uh, and so I think it's really important for a lot of people to understand that this is a, a critical function uh, inside the business. And it doesn't mean... That legal is not important. That marketing is not important. All those have a role to play, and you know, if you and I wanted to go on for another hour, I could talk about the ways that uh, that all those groups have a role to play as well that fits in with this entire idea. Um, but this is a really important thing for uh, businesses that want to survive and thrive, you know, in the next ten years.
0: Well, I think that that is great stuff. That definitely gets come on, come on. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can people engage with you? Uh,
1: Yeah, my uh, company is called Mango Tech uh, because I have that weird uh, French last name, M-A-N-G-O-T. We decided to just dive full into that. So uh, M-A-N-G-O-T-E-Q-U-E. So like a very uh, French technological uh, play on words. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, You can find me on uh, mangotech.com. I write uh, pretty often on uh, blog.mangotech.com. I've been writing for CIO.com for uh, a few years now as well. Um, But everything winds up on that website. Uh, So yeah, definitely would love to hear about the journeys that people are going through right now. I know this is hard stuff to do. I did it at Salesforce was a 16,000 person organization at that point, now it's a 35,000 person organization. Uh, And I've done it with startups, and I've done it with mid-sized companies, and the journey is always the most interesting part, because after that, people just soar. Uh, And I just love to hear about what people are doing.
0: Awesome. Well, if you enjoyed this much as I did, show Dave your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to mangotech.com. It's M-A-N-G-O-T-E-Q-U-E.com. Check out a great resource. Check out the blog. Find Dave on LinkedIn as well. I'll list all those in the notes of the show. Thanks good, Dave. Thank you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. This episode is brought to you by Money Alignment Academy. If you are looking for a financial wellness platform for your company, your organization, and your employees, check out moneyalignmentacademy.com or click on the link in the notes of the show.